This season covers an abduction and murder that occurred in Middleburg, Florida in January of 1990. It's a true story, and I have relied heavily on public documents and interviews with family and people close to the investigation in order to tell it. As always, the credibility of the interviewees, as well as my own credibility as I relay the information that I have gleaned, is to be determined by you, the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. I'm willing to try anything, to be honest with you. We're at the end of our ropes on this case and having DNA and everything tested, and we're just not coming back with any results. Oh, that is a shame, really. That's frustrating for you, I imagine. Yeah, it is. Okay, so quick note. I did some of the interviews for this season while my office was being renovated and had to share space in my dining room with my two birds, Asshole 1 and Asshole 2. So you're going to hear them in the background from time to time. Please forgive their intrusions, for they know not what they chirp. Honestly, I don't think they know much of anything, except how to make noise in a big mess. But never fear. I did manage to get them settled down fairly quickly after the opening of our call, by basically shooting daggers at them with my eyes and flailing my arms wildly, until it appears that I stunned them into submission. So I guess while you listen to this, you can picture me doing all that as I'm actively trying to do a professional interview with a respected member of law enforcement. Yeah, not one of my finer moments. My name is Detective Rob Schoonover. I'm with the Clay County Sheriff's Office working in the cold case homicide unit. My previous experience, I had 33 years with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. Um, spent a lot of my time in investigations. I was the commander of the homicide unit. Um, retired in 2014 and then started here in 2017. I took a three-year break. Then I came here and I've been doing the cold case homicide for Clay County and that's where we are. I, I'm interested about that three-year, you are like the third detective I've spoken to that, that retired and then decided to come back. What is that about? You just get bored? or? <laughs> yeah, just uh, young and can only play golf so much. And I knew the sheriff who had won the election down here, so um, I wasn't going to go back out on the street. So he gave me a position where I wouldn't have to do that. That's good. You can use your skills to the best of their advantage. Yeah. All right. So the first, the very first thing when I got this report, I mean, that popped into my head was most of the stories that I read about the case speculated that Terrell could have been pulled off the road by either someone in law enforcement or someone re, uh, pretending to be law enforcement. And just based on my initial reading of that, there was a witness who saw her pull off the road, literally with his own eyeballs. So. And then very close in time frame to tires screeching, waking neighbors up, and them hearing I didn't do anything, yelled. And so it all occurred in such a tight time frame, which doesn't really, didn't to me, now I'm not an investigator, but it didn't to me leave a whole lot of wiggle room for a police officer to have committed this crime. It would mean that the witness was not telling an accurate story. So I'm wondering why the law enforcement didn't sort of debunk that theory in the public early on. I wish I could tell you that. I know that from me looking into the case, um, because she was abducted from the roadside and then not found until a week later, 
that whole week there were so many rumors and tips that were going around and there was a Florida Highway Patrol trooper who had abducted a woman on 95 which is only I think an hour south of here I think is what they said and he he, uh, raped and killed her Um, so that name floated that he might have done it so they even went as far as uh, talking to him and they looked at some officers who were riding in the area that were assigned this area and uh, talked to them so yeah they looked at it and they said no it wasn't but why they didn't come out publicly and you know steadfast say that police weren't involved I, I don't know the Florida Highway Patrol trooper that he mentioned was Timothy Harris and he sexually assaulted and murdered a female that he stopped on Interstate 95 in Indian River County. Terrell's sister had mentioned him to me as well, although she described what she believed to be a female who had been assaulted but not murdered and managed to pull herself to safety. I'm not sure if she was thinking about another case or if she was perhaps conflating two that she had heard about, but one thing I do know is that Timothy Harris didn't murder anyone until March 4th of 1990, which would have been about three months after Terrell's abduction and murder. So while it would not have been something that was talked about or in the public consciousness in the week between when Terrell went missing and when she was found, it certainly did become something that the community could have melded into Terrell's story in the months to follow. When a case isn't quickly solved, there is a risk that over time, other murders that occur can leave possible associations in their wake. This was one angle that police looked into, but were eventually able to rule him out. Another thing I noticed was that in the months and years to follow, according to media reports, there was a political angle that touched Terrell's case and could have had some bearing on how the public perceived it, even as far as continuing the theory of a member of law enforcement being involved. A Fort Myers News press article titled Murder Probe Tainted by Politics, which was picked up by the Associated Press and dated January 10, 1991, outlined a scenario that involved the local sheriff, and a Clay County commissioner battling it out in the press. Now, mind you, this was almost a full year after Terrell's murder. The article reads in part, quote, Sheriff Dalton Bray plans to seek a grand jury investigation into allegations that Clay County Commissioner James Jett interfered with the probe into the murder of a Middleburg woman. But Jett said Wednesday the allegations are nothing but the sheriff playing politics because he fears the commissioner, a former police officer, will run against him. Bray denied that. I am not a politician. I despise politics, he said. Although I do have to note that the position of sheriff is an elected position, so by definition it is a political appointment. Terrell's mother was quoted in the article as saying, Neither of them will use my daughter's murder for their political gain. I promise you that. If it does turn into a political football, Then I'll be the kicker, and they will have to deal with me. It appears that the Florida Times Union paper had submitted a document request to have a report released, and in that report were accusations that County Commissioner Jett had interfered with the investigation, quote, by conducting his own probe. The news article goes on to say that, according to Chief Assistant State Attorney John Delaney, quote, no charges were brought against Jett because there was not enough evidence of wrongdoing. The report went on to say, quote, It appears that Commissioner Jett was engaged in private and public gamesmanship in a personal and political battle with the sheriff in Clay County. 
For his part, the article goes on to note that Jet said he didn't interfere with any investigation. He had merely passed on some information that he had received from police officers, who he called his constituents, to a private investigator that had been hired by Terrell's family. That information was that a deputy sheriff should be investigated as a possible suspect in the case. Jett alleged that Sheriff Bray was, quote, using his position to harass and intimidate me. Sheriff Bray told reporters, quote, he considers it petty, but I consider it severe. My former deputy has been implicated. Terrell's mother had publicly accused police of botching the investigation, but she said that she never asked the commissioner for his help. I can only imagine how this went over to the public consuming this nonsense in the media. I suspect that those behind-the-scenes whispers about possible police involvement, political or not, did nothing to help quell the ever-rising tide of conspiracy theories circling like vultures around the investigation. There were never any facts that suggested that a member of law enforcement had anything to do with this case. It was all based on rumors and speculation, as far as I can see. I can tell you, back in 1990, this was a small, small agency. Uh, like, it took the responding officer almost an hour to get to the scene when they were called. I noticed that, yeah. So, you know, and, and things were done that, you know, you, Monday morning quarterback is... The responding officer went in the car. He uh, he turned it on to see if it ran out of gas. He moved the seat back all the way. I mean, there were just things that that were touched and probably evidence, you know, tampered with or whatever. They really didn't have anything to go on with the car. Um, they did dust for fingerprints on the outside, the door and all that, but nothing. Um, so they got no prints of, of anyone off the car? No, no. Okay. All the pictures that are online you see of one of the doors open but I, when i spoke with terrell's sister she said to her understanding none of the doors were open when the car was first seen is that accurate it was found with no doors open or you're not sure yeah we can't verify it um we've heard that the door was open now open meaning what was it open you know full extent that it opens up or was it just cracked a little bit where it wasn't securely closed or yeah we could never um, determine which now, one the first person who did find it I want to say that he did say that the door was open now they didn't elaborate in the reports or anything uh, in reference to that so I really can't so that's a question say. is basically now when we're talking the door the picture in the in the um, on the media is the passenger door did was there anything said about the driver's door being maybe cracked or maybe open you know like open but not didn't close all the way or was it all the discussion about the passenger door um actually it was talked about both but okay. you know with the person going in there and securing the vehicle and then going down to the jiffy store and calling the police you know I, it just wasn't really clarified yeah it's frustrating i imagine for you now down the road because you can't take anything that you're reading at face value you have to assume that there are all of these are possibilities I guess. Right, and the pictures they were taken on the scene, I mean, that happened, the car was found probably, what, 6 in the morning, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. The pictures weren't taken until like 10 or 11, because by the time they sent someone out just to photograph it, because they had made contact with the family, and they had said that Terrell had the car, she was, you know, coming home, spent the night at the beach, and uh, so that's when things started to to roll as far as this might be a abduction or missing person.
When he says beach, I just want to clarify that Terrell's boyfriend at the time, Mike, the person who she was with that night, lived in Jacksonville Beach, which is some 45 minutes to an hour from Middleburg where her car was found. Another thing that jumped out at me was that, okay, so her car was found on the side of the road in the sandy area with one tire that was slightly, the front tire slightly on the, the cement and then it looked like the back tire was just smack up against it, if I'm reading the picture right. Um, now, maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong here, but as far as I know, tires don't screech on sand. So if the the couple, the witnesses that heard her, someone yell, um, heard tire squealing, I assume those tire squealing meant that that, whatever vehicle made that, they did it on the blacktop part, not the, not right, the sand. Right, right. They, they're more thinking that they did that taking off. Oh, taking um, off. Okay, I see. Yeah. All yeah. Right. So maybe they were already pulled over, and then, like I said, they heard the voice, you know, and then they heard squealing. So apparently they put her in the, a car, a vehicle, or whatever, and um, just based on my understanding, the witnesses that heard the tires that woke them up, they heard a tire screeching that woke them up. That's the order that I, that I read it in. Their, their, their recollection is that the tire screeching is what woke them up. They heard the screaming after, which is why I made the assumption that the screeching was the stopping, not the starting. Because um, they, their order of, of witness statement is that they heard tire screeching that woke, awoken them, and then after that they heard the screaming. So if that's the case, um, and now I don't know because you're saying it could have been taking off rather than the car taking off, what do, you, what do you remember about as far as what they recollect about the car that took off? Because one of them came out. They couldn't, give a, they couldn't give a description. They said that it looked like it was a SUV type or could have been a pickup, I think is what we got. SUV or pickup. Smaller, you know, smaller version. Do you think there's a possibility that that car never made it to the sand and he, the a perpetrator could have forced her off the road? Is that something that's in your thought um, process? Or do you believe that I that mean, car pulled off? You know, I, I really don't know. I've looked at, um, I worked a lot of like um, off-duty road construction where you have these vehicles that are working road construction they have like lights up on top of their car uh -huh. or they have flashing lights in the dash you know one of the things i thought of well okay if that was a suspect and he gets behind her it's dark she doesn't know that dark that road was dark there's no street lights or anything on that road yeah. um and they get behind her and flashing lights like that she pulls over thinking that it's an officer uh, maybe yes Yes. Okay. And so that she did have, she did have her uh, left shoulder clavicle was fractured. So that's like if she's sitting in her car, her window's down, and someone reaches in and strikes her with something across the. That could have uh, apparently been the, the the first blow action that the suspect had with her. Gotcha. See, that has a whole feel of, like, road rage to me versus someone who's, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It, yeah, it's it's I strange. I don't know if it's road rage. I just think, you know, then we heard conflicting reports about that she stopped at the minute market down the street from there and got some cigarettes. Well, family member said, no, she wouldn't do that. She, she'd come straight home. She wouldn't stop at, you know, 5 in the morning. And that store was used by, um, at that time, it's it very rural area, so 
also hunters would go there in the morning and get their coffee and everything. So what? supposedly there was there was a lot of activity in that parking lot. Right. Um, so if you did go in and went in the store and come out, you know, hey, did someone jump in her back seat and hide in the back seat and then made her stop? You know what I'm saying? Right, yeah. Or encountered or, her there, someone who saw her there and followed her after that. That's right, a possibility. Right. Where was this? What's the physical location of this store? I'm aware of, like, there was a couple Jiffy stores in the that, area. It, yeah, it was at Blanding and 218. It was right on the corner. Okay. And I can't, it, it's no longer, um, I can't remember what it is now, but back then it was just a standalone. It was all by itself and, you know. And it was a minute mark, you only, said? We're talking, yeah, just a couple minutes down the road. I need to point out here that the minute mark that the detective mentioned was just over a mile east of where Terrell's body would eventually be found a week after she was abducted. And the car location was west of the minute mark about a mile down County Road 218. If you continue on down 218, west of where her car was found, a mile or two at most, to that wooded area where he mentioned witnesses had heard screaming that morning, we are essentially talking about eight square miles from that point to the location of the body on the east end. This tells us that the perpetrator may never have ventured more than a couple miles from each stopping point, from Terrell's abandoned car to where the screams were heard, no more than a couple miles. From the minute mark, if that sighting is valid, which we're not sure of, but if it is, if that's where he initially saw her, the perpetrator, to where her car went off the road, that's about two miles. From every point to the next is only a couple of miles. And the only thing we don't know is where he took her after abducting her from the car, what he did there at the second crime scene, and then when he went and disposed of the body. Based on the distance to the other locations, If I were to venture an educated guess, and I should stop and be perfectly clear here that I am speculating, the perpetrator may never have ventured out of that eight-mile radius. Based on decomposition, which was fairly severe, Terrell's body was likely out in the elements most of the week, if not all. From everything that I have read, I don't think Terrell was taken and kept alive for any period of time before she was killed, and her own sister seems to support that based on her understanding of the stomach contents. If that's accurate, it's very likely that the killer abducted, killed, and disposed of Terrell in a short period of time, and did so all within close proximity of where he abducted her. What one might speculate, based on all of that, is that it suggests that the killer may be comfortable and familiar in this area. He might even live within that eight-mile radius or close by, or did at the time. Think about it. If this is a random person who doesn't live in the area, How much sense does it make that he would be going in one direction, west, when he encounters the car, and then double back east to dispose of the body? You'd think that a random person who is just passing through and grabs up a woman might not leave that body in the same area that he took it. He might have her in the car, go to another spot, and then drop her somewhere else even further than that. Now, again, this is all speculation, but the Doubling back from west to east is the thing that's important in this scenario, I think. Encountering her while going west on 218, and then the body ending up east of where the car was located on 218, signifies that he was driving in one direction and turned around for some reason when he eventually dumped the body. But you were, you have no, um, like no one from the store ID'd her as being there is what you're saying? No. Yeah, no. 
it was just a like possibility. One, one person said they thought they saw her. And again, you know, back then they didn't have video. Right. Um, so that hampered and you just going on hearsay. And so you're basically going on someone who thinks they possibly saw her there, but not sure. Right. Okay. Right. That right. was a possibility that she did go there, stop. Some of the, somebody saw her and, you know, Maybe. Like you said, either followed her or maybe one jumped in the back seat and the other one followed her in the car. I mean, don't know. Don't know. So you're not even sure this could be one or more perpetrators is what you're saying. You're not positive about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so um, just to go back real quick to the top, was there any indication that there were tire tracks of another vehicle behind her or was that sort of rendered moot after all the people were running around that? Crime scene. Yes, it yes. was rendered mute because there was vehicles that pulled up right behind her. I mean, <laughs> I think in one photo you can see there's a police car like yeah. right <laughs> behind her. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, people okay. were just, and you had other people who said, you know, they stopped, blocked the car. And yeah, it was. That's very frustrating. Wow. Um, I've seen a couple inconsistencies in the media. I wanted to cover those just to make sure that we got them. I've sure. seen in the media that uh, the, the couple that heard her um, Yell had said there was a, um, I didn't do it versus I didn't do anything, which to me are two very different things. Um, the report says I didn't do anything. Is that what you guys are going with? The witnesses said I didn't do anything. That she heard her, they heard her yell a couple times. Looking back and uh, um, going back and getting their statements, I want to say that it was I didn't do anything. I didn't yeah. do anything. Okay, that's what I. <clears throat> that's what it says in the report that I have. I just wanted to make sure because I had seen some differences about that and the car door. I wanted to just make sure that we got those cleared up. Exactly a week after Terrell's car was found, two young boys, 11 and 14, were riding their ATVs northbound on Lee Drive South when they noticed a bad smell. Lee Drive is a road off of Blanding Boulevard, which eventually intersects into 218, and it's about four miles from where Terrell's car was found. Unfortunately, the two kids got off their ATVs and they went to investigate, thinking that it was an animal. They walked a short distance into the wooded area and they found a body. I imagine they shot out of there like little firecrackers and sped all the way home, hurrying inside and breathlessly telling their father, who then called 911. The body was about 25 feet off Lee Drive, not very far at all. Officers, the detective, and a quick response team, as well as the MEN, Florida Department of Law Enforcement were all dispatched, and as a crowd began to gather across the street, the area was roped off and the perimeter was guarded. Law enforcement immediately set about their tasks. The body itself was not investigated until the medical examiner and FDLE arrived. She was lying face down with her midsection draped over a palmetto stump, quote, causing her buttocks to appear raised in the air, displayed towards the road. The body was clad in a pair of light blue panties, pulled down below her butt, white socks, and white sneakers. No other clothing was found. She also wore a yellow Seiko watch and a yellow ring on her left hand, and on her right, two amethyst birthstone rings. While these items were tentatively used to ID Terrell, later dental records would provide confirmation. The ME would find that her left collarbone was broken, and the report notes that, quote, the blow was definitely a frontal blow. There are at least two stab wounds in the upper right chest, and her right lung showed damage. They also found dried blood in her trachea. She had numerous drag marks on her back, 
buttocks, and the back of her legs. The sexual assault kit was useless due to decomposition, and it's noted that serology testing was useless for the same reason. Her hyoid bone was missing, but they could not make any determinations in that regard because there were indications of animals possibly disturbing the scene. To me, as a layperson, the position of her body seems relevant given the drag marks. If a perpetrator dragged her body out of a vehicle, 25 feet from Lee Road, into a wooded area, why would he then flip her over a palmetto bush with her butt sticking up in the air? It feels as though with the underwear down and the rest of the clothing missing, all of this might not be inadvertent. The perpetrator could very well have staged the body in that position, and when I spoke with the detective, I asked him about this. You know, she wasn't found until a week later, um, and the only thing she was found with was her shoes, her tennis shoes, socks, and underwear. Everything else was, no other, none, nothing else was found on her. So I recently have tested through new technology, um, took it to DNA labs in South Florida, and they tested her underwear, um, her shoes and socks, and did not get any DNA profiles off of those items. So where she was found, that off Lee Road there, um, it seems it's a little remote as far as just someone randomly finding that place. Like, it seems to me like you'd have to sort of know that was in there. Would you agree you would with think, me? Yeah, because it's, you cross a little bridge and then it's a little dirt road and it's, it's basically along the river, um, a little tiny creek, I say, um, Black Creek. And... But it's, main, it's right off of Blanding, so it's not like, you know, you turn right on that Lee Road and it's it was only like, you know, maybe not even 100 yards down that road. So it, it feels like it would be someone that would know the area, but like you said, now that you're thinking about it, if it's not that far off Blanding, it could very well be someone that was just scared and wanted just to get rid of a body. and just Want to get rid of the body <laughs> and just say, oh, here's a spot. All right. Um, based on the way the body was found and what you found at the scene, evidence, do you feel like she could have been killed there, or there had to be in another place where she was killed before she was taken there? Yeah, I believe she was killed elsewhere, and her body was taken there and dumped. Just on my reading of what I've got, it feels as though the body may have been posed. Would you say that is accurate, or you can't say for certain? There was talk of that. Basically, the body was put over a palmetto bush, like laid over a palmetto when they found her. Mm-hmm. Face down, her underwear was pulled partially down off her, her, her waist. Um, but because of the decomposition, we could not get any testing done as far as a sexual assault or anything like that. Would you say that because of the way her body, clothing was displaced, it's at least a poss good possibility that there was some sort of sexual component to the crime? Yes, yes. Okay. And I noticed that there are drag marks mentioned on her back. So if there are drag marks on the back side of her body, but she's laying on the front side, and you're picturing someone taking a body out of their car, it seems that the person would have had to, I mean, even... He could have, could have drug her by holding onto her wrist mm -hmm. and dragging her, and right. that's why maybe her panties came down off of her. Right. Um, and then when got to that palmetto bush, just kind of turned her over and put her on top of it. And the turned her over part is what interests me because, you know, a lot of the crimes I see is it's drag her, let go, and leave. It's not yeah. flip her over anything. I mean, right. was there anything in that scene that made you understand why the, the killer might have flipped her over and put her there 
other than posing? No, and, and, and what they did, they went back out. Well, they, actually, before they moved her, they went ahead and cleared a surrounding area all around her. They all brush, trees, limbs, anything. They went methodically went through it to see if they were missing anything. And then, you know, once they cleared the whole area around her, like a circle, then they went to the body and started there as far as doing their um, investigating. Okay. So, yeah, nothing was found. I mean, um, nothing was collected at the scene that uh, they just didn't have anything. So there are essentially three crime scenes, the car, then wherever the perpetrator or perpetrators took her, and then the third crime scene is basically what you're Dumping saying. Dumping her, right. Dumping her. Right. Okay. Um, I don't know if this is something you want out there. I'm just going to ask. There's a necklace that's mentioned in the report um, that she was wearing. Was that recovered? There was some type of jewelry that was recovered and given back to the mother. Right. I saw that the rings were recovered, but she was... The very first... Uh, um, I don't know if they call it a bolo. They called it something. They sent out with the list of her clothing... Um, some of it wasn't found. It mentioned a thin gold necklace and a diamond solitaire pendant. And I was wondering if that was ever found or if the, that's a, there's a possibility that no, the perpetrator took that. No, that, that. no, no, that was never found. So either that perpetrator took it or somehow uh, animal During predation. The struggle or, yeah, or, yeah. Oh, that's true. We've got a second crime scene. It could have been lost at the second crime scene, uh, yeah, that I think about yeah. it, depending on where that was. Robert Keppel and J.G. Weiss wrote a paper called The Rarity of Unusual Dispositions of Victim Bodies, Staging and Posing, and it was published in 2004. In it, they wrote, quote, The act of leaving a victim's body in an unusual position is a conscious criminal action by an offender to thwart an investigation, shock the finder and investigators, or give perverted pleasure to the killer. But their study did distinguish between staging and posing. Quote, Posing is not to be confused with staging, because staging refers to the manipulation of the scene around the body, as well as positioning of the body, to make the scene appear to be something it is not. In the brief summary that police received early on from the medical examiner the day after her body was found, it was noted, quote, there were numerous drag marks on the victim's back, buttocks, and the back of her legs. There are a couple of possibilities as far as when those drag marks got there. First, it's possible that when the perpetrator removed Terrell from her car and shoved her into his own vehicle, abducting her, he took her to a second crime scene, before the third, which would be where her body was found, and possibly sexually assaulted her. It's possible that she died at the second scene and was dragged from there to his vehicle, where he would then load her back in and remove her again to dump the body. Now, this is all supposing that at the second crime scene he took her out of the vehicle. It's also possible that he never took her out of that vehicle and the damage that he inflicted was done right there in his vehicle. At the third crime scene or the dump site, he would remove her from the car, carrying or dragging her and put her body where she was found. If there was an assault in his vehicle and he killed her in there and then brought her to the dump site, having taken her nowhere else, we could suppose that the likely theory was that he dragged her from his vehicle to the side of the wooded area and then turned her body over and laid it over a stump in a palmetto bush. In any scenario, it would make sense for him to drag or carry the body from the vehicle to the spot 25 feet off of Lee Road where she was found. If he dragged her, simply dropping her arms or legs right there would be the quickest, wouldn't it? 
if he carried her essentially the same. In either case, to take the time and flip her over and then drape her over a stump suggests an intentional posing of her body. With dragging, he would simply release the legs or the arms and quickly get back to his vehicle and make his getaway. That's usually how we find the bodies, right? If someone drags them out of their car and leaves them on the side of the road, they're not generally tossed over some other bush or tree. They just leave them where they lay and get moving. If the perpetrator carried Carol, either he's got her over his shoulder with the front of her body facing his chest and he would lean over and drop her, meaning that she would be on her back, not how she was found, or he's cradling her, one arm under the backs of her knees and the other behind her back like we might see a firefighter carry an injured person to safety. In that case, you would expect that he would drop her from that position and she would also land on her back. The point here is that it at least appears as though the perpetrator could have made an intentional effort to put the body where he did, how he did, and that would lend itself more to body posing, in this case with her backside exposed, sticking up and facing the direction of the road. According to this study that I alluded to earlier, sexual posing of a body is rare in a numerical sense. It occurs in a very small subset of homicide cases. There were three basic reasons highlighted in this study to explain why offenders posed a body after a homicide. The first and most popular of the three had to do with the offender satisfying some sort of sexual fantasy. The second motivation was done as retaliation by the offender, posing as a way to degrade or punish the woman. The third and least common was posing a body to stage the scene to make it look like it was a sex-related murder in order to mislead police. Generally, these were countermeasures to cover up a violent homicide that had occurred during some non-sexual encounter or activity done as an afterthought to mislead investigators. Keppel and Weiss cited statistics from the Washington State Attorney General's Homicide Investigation and Tracking Systems Database. From murder cases in the years 1981 through 2000, which was a total of 5,224 cases, they found that, quote, the relative frequency of unusual body dispositions is revealed as a very rare occurrence. Only 1.3% of victims are left in an unusual position, with 0.3% being posed and 0.1% being staged. There were other things about these type of murders that they said set them apart from the rest. On average, both the victims and the killers were older and white. Females were the likely victim when posing or staging was involved, and they found that sexual assault was often included when bodies were posed. They also found that in the case of posed victims, binding was more likely, as well as the use of what they characterized as a more hands-on means of killing, such as stabbing or cutting weapons, bludgeons, or ligatures. To give you an idea of the scope of this study, which was done to get a basic idea of staged homicide scenes that involved posing, 43 experts on homicide were consulted, 20 of which were either active or retired investigators. The experts had all either served as a homicide investigator or led a homicide division. Most had provided expert testimony and had advanced training in their fields of expertise. They averaged around 25 years in law enforcement and collectively, they worked or consulted on over 30,000 violent crimes. The average was about 1,600 each. Only about 1% of the study cases had been sexually posed homicides, and it averaged about 10 in each career. Of the cases in total, only 428 out of the combined 44,541 cases 
were cases where they included sexually posed homicides. Do you have any cases right now that you feel like might could be linked to to um, Terrell's or you no? Um, there was a case in Georgia, and we're actually waiting on the results for DNA Labs has that person's fingernail clippings along with our fingernail clippings. They're trying to see if they could come up and um, say that these incidents weren't alike, but it was um, four months after our incident up in Georgia. Uh, a girl was, 16-year-old girl, her car was found on the side of the road running, lights on, and they found her several days later murdered. And they all, that was, we're talking four months apart, two hours up the road into Georgia. So, um, and I talked to a, a GBI, Georgia Bureau investigator, who had that case. And um, so that was the only thing that we could do was see if her clippings and my clippings kind of, and we're still waiting on the results. Is there anything else that you can think of that I haven't asked that you feel is important to this crime as far as getting leads or things that I need to know, you know, for the listener to know? Um, no, pretty much you've touched on what we what we know is, you know, there was even people reporting that um, that night or early in the morning they heard screams at different areas of uh, that road, off of that road, um, which could lead that, okay, someone abducted her and then took her down the road. And all that's, like I said, it's dirt road after dirt road and maybe a house here and then a quarter of a mile there's another house and some of those people uh, reported this is after that the police were going out trying to find and it was you know it was on news it was heavily covered that people said yeah I heard screams but yeah right and which direction um, um, you're talking about off 218 yeah she was going west on 218 uh-huh. and then past that Still going west, uh, uh, an area back in the woods, back in that area is where people said they heard someone screaming. So back in the woods, meaning once she's going west, let's see, no, exactly. Then she turns off of that 218 onto a dirt road. Uh, and turns you go right? Back. Turns right, like meaning? Left. Oh, left. turns left. Okay, that's different than yeah. I was thinking. All right. So basically, what you w- would need now from the community, the people I'm trying to, you know, appeal to, would be anyone that heard anything or saw anything physically that morning, firsthand, is what you're looking yeah. for. You need to yeah. know if there's I mean, any... anything that, you know, how little they think it is, but, you know, at the time, they just thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to get involved, I'm not going to call or whatever, but, you know, until we can look at it. And during that time frame, however, you can put it out there that, you know, yeah, if anyone was ever in a similar situation where someone tried pulling you over or forcing you off the road or, you know, even if you didn't go for it, you know, you just uh, were afraid and kept going. Um, And if you got a look at the car or... That might be helpful. All right. As it turns out, I tracked down a woman who had a similar experience. And in the next episode, I'll tell you about that and let you hear her story. Stay tuned.